Hello, listeners. I'm Logan McLean, and this is OJT On The Job Training. It's a podcast where I, a journalism student, practice my craft by interviewing passionate people about their projects. Carrie McCaffrey is an academic librarian who works at UPEI's Robertson Library in Charlottetown. Carrie is back for part two today to get into the political side of who controls access to information. We talk about anti-racism, the true power of knowledge, and how the library model could be adopted by other industries. I know that you are involved a bit uh, with a group at UPEI called The Hive, which is an anti-capitalist organization. Um, how did you become politically involved or engaged? When did you start paying attention to the news and caring about it? Yeah, well, I'll first off start by saying that I have been really bad at going to Hive meetings literally since like COVID started, um, but I still definitely share the same values with them. Um, as for like when I started kind of realizing that I was anti-capitalist, it's always been like kind of underlying. I feel like throughout my education, um, it's been building and just like, I guess like, you know, seeing within the system, the issues that happen, like how people like can't even live off their minimum wage um, or like just giving you know, just like in a in a customer service environment retail place when they give you exactly like an hour under full time so they don't have to give you benefits or vacation days or like that kind of bullshit. But like it just like slowly built up until I was like, this world is not fair. This is not the way to do it. And it was kind of when the hive started that I was like, yeah, I guess I am anti-capitalist. Um and then a few months after, I was like, you know what? Communism makes sense. Like, there's such this anti, you know, communist issue because of, like, the Cold War and Russia and everything. And it's so misunderstood. And I don't know if I, like, 100% want to go to communism or whatever, right? But I can just tell you that, like, the system that we have right now is not working for anyone except for, like, rich white men. Do you think that COVID has shown cracks in the way that capitalism supports society? I don't think it necessarily showed cracks. I think it maybe accentuated them. Um, I guess what I want to say is like that they were already there. Um, but, you know, the people who are so like, would never even consider anything but capitalism, I don't think that this has really convinced them, right? Like, I don't think that that has changed anyone's mind, right? Because they just think, like, oh, well, we just need to bounce back. The economy will be fine. Like, yeah, whatever. Which is just shitty because, you know, as we're seeing in the States, you're just killing a bunch of people for the economy. Like, it's just terrible. On the other side, though, um, what do you say to the argument that um, crises like this present an opportunity for the more authoritarian side of communism to basically restructure society in a permanent way to put a new group of people on top? That's sort of the, and I don't even mean the pandemic conspiracy. I mean, like the right-wing argument that, yeah, this is actually happening, but people like Justin Trudeau, for example, are using it to consolidate power. What do you say to that? Oof. 
I don't know if I even really know much about that, um, to be honest. But I do like the idea of using a time like this to um, create more change. Like, I've been really enjoying the discussion of, like, a minimum living, livable wage that, like, you get no matter what. Like, eliminating EI, it's just... You're getting, what is that type of wage called? I don't even remember. <laughs> universal basic income, I Thank think. Thank you. Universal basic income. Um, That's one version of it anyway. Yeah, exactly. Just, I like that at least it's opened up talks of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, I guess, guess that's the, what I to say. <laughs> yeah, the question is though, what about the argument that this is a slippery slope? Where do you draw the line between making good changes and, you know, authoritarianism i guess i i don't know if i think (laughs) that's even an argument i guess because it's hard to address when you want the whole system to crumble anyway because to me it's i want to get to the end of that slope that sounds great to me let's slide (laughs) so i don't even know if i can answer that (laughs) when so you said you kind of really kind of came into understanding the way that your views were changing when you went to that first Hive meeting? Yeah, definitely on like embracing anti-capitalism and not just like complaining in capitalism. Right, yeah. because everybody complains about capitalism, even people who like it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> when did you realize that sort of the way um, the institutions sort of whatever you want to call the institution that keeps all the knowledge behind a gate when did you realize that was a problem? And was it along the same lines as seeing issues with capitalism or did those two sort of evolve separately? Mm. Yeah, like in a really, like in a way, being a librarian and like a library is almost like, it is, it's gatekeeping information in a way because you have to like sign up and, and come here. And there's so many barriers, barriers to getting this information, even though it is free, it still feels like gatekeeping um, sometimes. So that's kind of, it's that we've been having discussions about this a lot, actually, at the library, about ways to like take down those barriers, because we don't want to be gatekeepers. We want to be like, information protectors i guess is a better way to put it what was the second half of the question was the realization that that was a problem was that did you realize that in line with seeing problems with capitalism um no i definitely realized that earlier when i was in my like mlis degree what do you think is sort of the uh socio-political power of knowledge in books in this society book knowledge is above all knowledge, right? Like if you have that piece of paper that says you did so many years at whatever institution, that is the power. And that power comes from money. And certain people have privileges on having that money or being able to get loans for that money. And just like, oh my God, it's such a big topic to talk about, right? Because it just brings everything together. Like, like racism in that effect is like because they don't have as many opportunities or they don't have any opportunities um, to be able to get the same type of like book knowledge and the same 
stupid pieces of paper that we have that prove that we did a thing, then they're seen as like invalid. So just like trying to broaden your sense of like what is knowledge is really important. Um, And what I really want to work on myself is kind of looking at like indigenous ways of knowledge, because I think um, I need to get a little bit out of my like book knowledge is the best knowledge way because I have so much power as someone who not only has access to information, but like access to like understanding information. Um, I also need to know that my knowledge is not like the best knowledge. It's a Western worldview of knowledge. And I need to like place myself within that and start realizing there are other ways of knowledge and learning. Yeah, I've been trying to think about it. Um, and this is a habit I had to break myself, not looking at knowledge as a collection of things that you you know show to people and stuff so much as a living thing that is constantly changing. And I, I think that collection of things attitude is where people come up with uh, or come up against the inability to recognize that they're wrong. Like, uh, if you think that it's just a collection of things, you don't want to give up those things. They're all yours. But if you see it as something that is constantly evolving and growing, you don't lose when you're wrong. You actually win because you're growing even more. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something I tell myself, at least. I love that. It's hard to be that way all the time. It's hard in a capitalist world to not like fall into old patterns right like especially when you grow up knowing that or knowing being told that like book knowledge is the best knowledge then it's like hard to get out of that headspace and be like oh yeah it's just a type of knowledge it's just something that it's the way we've been taught to know but it's not the whole damn world's way of knowing things is the library at upei have any kind of leanings towards offering things like uh, more access to indigenous knowledge and those ways of understanding the world? Um, We're definitely working on this at Robertson Library. We're trying to um, work on diversifying our collections and not just like buying books about indigenous and about BIPOC, but actually starting to look at like academic works that are written by BIPOC in the field so it's not just white people spouting their knowledge to um, Mm -hmm. diversifying like collections it's a huge thing right Uh, but it's definitely something we're trying to work more towards and trying to figure out ways that we can be more welcoming to everyone because UPEI has such a large um, international student population And, like, we are primarily white um, workplace, the Robertson Library, just by themselves. So reaching out and doing the work to understand what makes them comfortable, what is better, like, in their culture and ways that we can take down some of those barriers for people so that they want to use the library and they can use the library and also that they're not just going to find like dusty old white men books on it either. When I asked about uh, the uh, political power of knowledge, I, I found your response very interesting. Um, what I meant more was what power do people gain from learning? Um, 
but the answer you gave was very insightful. You talked about how um, the people who have a lot of the, what you call like the book learning reflects where power lies. Mm. Could you talk a little bit about uh, how you how to uh, kind of change that? How to change it? Oof. Um, being aware is the first thing. Um, wanting to change it is important. If you don't want to change the system, it's not gonna. So you're not gonna put in the work, right? Like it's a it's a long journey, and it's tied into this whole um, being anti-racist thing. Like this is really where uh -huh. it stemmed out of. So if you haven't done the work to get to the point where you can say, I am anti-racist, I will follow what the BIPOC say, even if I disagree with it, because I know that it, like their opinions are the ones that matter and I'm willing to grow and learn if you haven't gotten to that point, which I'm not saying it's bad if you haven't, everyone's like on a journey with this it's a lot of work for white people to put in um and it can take some time to get to that point but if you're not at that point you're not ready to do that kind of stuff um once you get there i really am not the person to ask about what to do i'm just learning that myself really mm -hmm. um there's lots of great resources out there reaching out to the bipoc community and asking them without putting the work onto them is important mm -hmm. um and a good distinction to make but yeah i don't feel comfortable saying like this is what you have to do because i don't really know and then like yeah. part of that is also how do you change like this like we're changing within this systemic issue but like are you just altering the system when you really want to take down the whole system that's a whole other thing but that's what i've been thinking about a lot lately is like what is the best way is it to start from the bottom up or like the top down yeah what have you done personally right now i'm trying to um well, I'm taking an anti-racist like library conference. Actually, all of us at the, all the librarians okay. are doing that, um, and it's like a course as well. So you're doing like we're doing work on like doing diversity audits and like talking about diversifying collections and stuff like that. Um, I personally am trying to read a lot more black authors because I just would blindly pick books, right? And when you blindly pick books, of course, the majority of them are going to be white. So being intentional in like finding those BIPOC authors and really educating myself has been like, that's like really what I'm putting a lot of effort into right now. Because I realized that I need to read more. I need to learn more about it. And, um, and then just, you know, trying to speak up when, when you see things and notice things, which you start noticing, like the more you learn, um, and doing it like in an educating way, like not an alienation way of like, when you hear those little like microaggressions or, you know, when someone says like, oh, that person's driving bad, they must be Asian. Just like addressing that kind of stuff when it comes up in like a calm manner, trying to be like, hey, uh, I don't think that's a great way to, like, I don't think you should assume that. Like, you don't actually know that. Um, like, why do you think you assumed that? 
Like, where do you think that thought came from? And and analyzing that kind of stuff. And analyzing my own thoughts, too, because I am no way at the end of my, like, journey by that. I still have racist thoughts 100%. And just sitting down after they happen and being like, why did I think that? Where did that come from? When did I learn that? That kind of stuff is important work to do. Is that difficult? Oh, yeah. 100%. And I could sit here and bitch and whine about it all day. (laughs) Um, And it sucks. And uh, it's very interesting, too. Um, It goes back and forth for me. Sometimes I'm way into it. And sometimes I'm just like, you know what? I need a mental break. Um, Because Mm -hmm. it is very exhausting. Because you have to basically, like, get inside of yourself and like pick apart all of the pieces that have been ingrained in you in your entire life so it's difficult it's exhausting but it's important and necessary to do it's like seeing that the system extends even into yourself that's like the start like yeah (laughs) you mentioned uh calmly talking to other people about this stuff uh, that's one of the reasons I stopped talking to people on Facebook about it because I'm not good at the calm part or about anything. I don't even mean like anti racist stuff, just like uh, I'm not good at staying calm and arguing. Are, are you? Um, I don't like to think of it as arguing. And um, right. I mean, it's I, ideally, it's not. By no means am I like running around calling out strangers at this point. Uh-huh. Um, I'm just trying to kind of like with my partner or with my family or my friends um if i hear something or even if i do something i'll call it out like in front of someone else and be like wow why did i say that um just like starting the conversation is important um but again it's the same thing as like facebook you got to pick your battles if you know who you're talking to then you can be like you know what this person's not going to listen to me why even bother um but sometimes you just have to call people out and be okay with the room becoming awkwardly silent or something like that or uncomfortable and just challenge those ideas. And even if they don't come out like completely changed from that one conversation, like maybe they'll think next time about it and be like, oh yeah, I do remember what they said. Like maybe I should think about what I say before I say it. Yeah, just having a conversation with a a sensible person who who like you seem to want to have conversations and not just scream at people that they're wrong. Sometimes I want to scream at people. Um I do, I do yell at my computer screen a lot or like at YouTube a lot. Um I think we all need that. <laughs> but not at the actual people, just like, "Why are you so stupid?" Uh-huh. <laughs> so, getting back a little bit to the hive. I know you haven't been going, but just that kind of thing, an activist reading group. Uh, what do you think is the value in that? Because I know with uh, communist and anti-capitalist groups, uh, people talk a lot about theory and praxis. Um, I guess the reading group does a lot of the theory side. Do you think there's a value in having uh, like a what I kind of look at as an activist book club? Yeah, um, I think that is great because it... Um provides accountability which some people really need with their reading and also you get different people from different backgrounds like bringing their journey to the table so of course you're going to be able to like advance 
your knowledge and also discuss things that you might not understand and and grow from that as well. So of course, of course, there is a benefit in that. And just like community in general, knowing that you have people around you that believe the same stuff you do um, can be really powerful and uh, strengthening when you think about like fighting the good fight. Something I've always found interesting are tool libraries. I don't know if there's any in uh, Charlottetown, but what do you think about that sort of stuff? Uh, uh, there was a, place a tool where people library at one point, and they were operating out of like um, a storage container place. Um, okay. I don't know if they still exist or not. There's a pretty cool one in Halifax when I lived there when I was doing my master's. Um, but I think that kind of stuff is great. Uh, for the community and just like anything like that, like maker spaces or places where you can um, like if you can get a tool that you couldn't afford uh, otherwise to be able to make something like that's so mm -hmm. cool and definitely like anti-capitalist. And I love that. <laughs> yeah, like places like Radstorm in Halifax. I'm not sure if you were ever there. It's like a, a punk space, though, where people can come think, in for like DIY classes and they have a thing called the People's Printer and yeah, they have I think shows I had and stuff heard like of that. that. Yeah, I think I may have yeah. went to like a zine making there once. Yep. Yep. They have yeah. zine workshops yeah. and a library, of course, a zine library. Yes. Do you think there are other kinds of things that could be moved to a library space? Like not just tools, but other things that Ooh. currently have barriers to them that could be a benefit to society? if everybody was able to get it? I mean, probably. Do I have any examples off the top of my head? No. Um, I guess the best libraries already have a lot of stuff. Like the one in Summerside, you can rent a telescope, you can take out oh, snowshoes and stuff. Oh, they have a telescope too? Wicked. We have a yeah. telescope here. Yeah, I think a lot of people forget um, that libraries aren't just books. Uh, there's like DVDs and like online books now, like eBooks mm -hmm. with Overdrive. Um, we have laptops here so that if students, they like break their laptop or they need a laptop for a week because they can't come into the library, they can borrow a laptop. Um, but I think there's so many things that you could apply like into a library that would just be great for people because it's just, you know, it's providing access to something that someone might not have because of their privilege. Do you think we can move towards a place where you like this? <clears throat> there's kind of a complicated thing where libraries are this wonderful access to all kinds of things for free. But as you mentioned, it is also there's a bit of a gate in some ways. Do you think we can move towards a place where there is even more like truly free access to information? I hope so. I, I would think that, um, yes, but it also, like, it depends on a lot of stuff, right? Because, like, you know, capitalism is growing. and um, But there are, like, people who are very into the open access. Like, that movement is also growing. Um, so I think if we keep fighting, we can definitely get to a point where, you know, I hope, ideally, where all information is freely accessible. Um, but I don't know if I'll see that in my lifetime, but I, I hope so. I guess the challenge I wonder is um, there is something of a value to having not a gatekeeper, but someone who can verify that the information you're looking at isn't just bullshit. Because with the internet, 
there is such a proliferation of any kind of information you want. Like conspiracy theorists are the most informed people you'll ever meet. They're just misinformed. I love like, conspiracy theorists. I love that kind of stuff. Um. <laughs> and also the way that like, uh, you know, studies are peer reviewed, like mm -hmm. professors are kind of gatekeep each other. But then no one can read the damn studies unless they pay a bunch of money for it. Right. Like it, it it's an interesting like, there's so many different layers to it. Right. Because like I said, like I'm trying to move away from the gatekeeper to more like the information like protector of it so if you like can strip down a lot of these barriers then it's less gatekeeping um talking mm -hmm. about like peer-reviewed is such a whole thing because it's like a lot of students are taught that like this is the best information and like you don't necessarily know that um peer reviewers even if it's a double blind like peer review process you still have biases yourself. Every single mm -hmm. human has biases. So if someone doesn't like your bias because it goes against their bias, then they're going to mm -hmm. rip your paper to shreds. And it is a way yeah. to have accountability, but it's also gotten to a point where like academia is so like they have this phrase called publish or perish because yeah. when you're a professor, um, a lot of times you have to just keep putting out all of this stuff and we have metrics to measure everything you're published and those aren't even like necessarily good metrics it was something that was made up like years ago by some old white man like everything <laughs> and uh, it's just like because then if you're always in a rush to put information out are you are you doing it well? Are you just putting out as much as you can? Mm -hmm. um, like gone are the days when people would repeat other people's science experiments. And yes. that's important in science. Yeah. You're supposed to repeat it to see if you can get the same things. Crucial. Otherwise, what if we end up with another anti-vaccine thing where like this guy <laughs> published a study and then, yeah, he comes back years later and says, no, this was wrong. This was bad. But everyone's like the the damage is done, you know? it's done because of that autism and vaccine bullshit. And if there's no one coming back to check other studies and the original one is just taken as is, like, that's detrimental. Yeah, like Andrew Wakefield is still held up as a hero by many people. One thing I would point to that's sort of an interesting example of uh, how that future could work is Wikipedia. Uh, far from perfect, but it is kept functioning uh, by pure pedantry, <laughs> by the simple fact that nerds get mad when information is wrong. And, you know, it's a few, not a few, but a bunch of people who are very dedicated to making sure that the the knowledge stays true. And like, it's not the best. You can tell who the good writers are and who the ones that uh, this is maybe a little bit dubious, but it's been around for a while and it's still an all right place. Like, you know, so that's wouldn't necessarily call that a model, but it is evidence that you can have a body of information that exists solely because people value information. Definitely. And it's just like knowing how to 
evaluate that knowledge on Wikipedia because it can be incredibly yeah. useful. And like, you know, sometimes libraries have like Wikipedia thons or like hackathons, they'll call it, or something where you just like go in and like spend a whole day just trying to like put more citations in or, or trying to find more evidence for random Wikipedia pages, or you can like pick a topic and go for that. Um, but you still have to be critical about it. So as long as you have those yep. skills, you know, then I think we do, Wikipedia is a great source for sure. Yeah, it's a nice surface level thing for sure. Definitely. Um, I like, have to go. Yeah. Do you have a final question? I think we actually already pretty much just did the final question. Damn. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> I could talk about this stuff all day and then be exhausted and go home and sleep. Uh, that's pretty much what I do most days is talk about all of this stuff and then get way exhausted. <laughs> it's heavy. It's heavy stuff. I'd love to have you back sometime, though. We could talk about more things that talk all day about. So Yeah, that would be awesome. And I, there's also some other great librarians here that I'm sure would love yeah. to talk to you as well. That I would be ideal. Um, it's not always easy to find people. Sometimes I think it will be. And then I'm surprised who doesn't want to do it. Oh, I so. was so into it. I want to start my own podcast with like another yeah. librarian or something. But uh, I haven't managed to convince anyone yet. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. It's a it's a lot of work, but it's extremely rewarding. Yeah, definitely. All yeah. right. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks a lot, Carrie. All right. I'll see you around. And it's now time for the progress report. This is where I discuss a bit of what I've been learning as the host, producer, marketer, and whatever else of OJT. Over the COVID summer, I, like many people, had a real shift in my thinking. I never really wanted to live in PEI, but I've accepted it's where I'm going to be for a while, and it's starting to grow on me. I saw an ad recently for a job at the CBC. The first item under job requirements was cultivating sources. This really stood out to me. Journalism is, in part, about who you know, and everything in PEI is about who you know. When I moved back to Summerside from Halifax, I started telling people, my name is Logan McLean, Kenny is my father, and Vance Bridges is my grandfather. I knew how this game works, even if I didn't want to play it yet. In small places, everyone knows everyone else, and all their business. This certainly has potential downsides as a journalist, with gossip spreading pretty fast if people don't like you, but it's mostly a good thing that those with a duty to the public are so close to it. It ensures the media doesn't get complacent. If you've ever read the comments on The Guardian's Facebook account, you'll know island journalists hear back from their readers. While I don't recommend diving into the comments too much for sanity's sake, I do see other upsides to the small town social structure. People here like to talk, and many islanders are natural storytellers. This is a place with a lot more history than just Lucy Maud Montgomery and Confederation. You just have to know where to look, and I'm starting to find those places. PEI is actually a great place for journalism, if you can get people to trust you. And that's what I think cultivating sources is all about. I really like that word, cultivation. It suits island journalism perfectly. Things don't happen quickly here. And if you want people to trust you, you've got to adjust your speed to the situation. I talked before about my garden. Well, cultivating sources is similar. Sure, you can go and buy a grown tomato plant and water it and you'll have tomatoes. If you need a quote for a story, you can call the source for 15 minutes and you'll meet a deadline. But if you really want something special, if you want that story to turn into a delicious mixed metaphor bolognese, you start from seed. You go to that source's house. You spend an hour or three at the kitchen table, looking at the photo albums, petting the jumpy dog. 
and you drink the tea if they offer you tea. It doesn't matter if you hate tea, I remember my instructor saying back in first year, you drink the damn tea. And I actually like tea. There are many parts of journalism that give me doubts, but interviewing islanders about their way of life is not one of them. And that's all for episode 12. You can follow the Robertson Library on Instagram at Robertson Library. Carrie also requested I mention BIPOC Usher as an organization to check out. That stands for Black and Indigenous People of Color United for Strength Home Relationship. They can be consulted for resources and help with anti-racist training, and you can find them on Instagram and Facebook at BIPOC Usher. You can follow this podcast on Instagram at OJT underscore podcast and on Twitter at OJT podcast. The Facebook page is OJT on the job training. You can follow me on Instagram at logan.mclean.75 and on Twitter at loganmclean94. And finally, listeners, please check out my website, ojtpod.ca, for my written stories and photography, and you can find the podcast there and on all major streaming platforms. Please rate and subscribe and leave a review. Everything helps when getting a podcast off the ground, and if you like this show and want more interesting guests, listener feedback is the best way to help me reach new people and make that happen. This has been OJT on the job training. I'm Logan McLean. Thank you for listening.